Thank you, Jeff and praise team. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. As a young child, I rather enjoyed spy stories. And there's no better spy stories than the ones that come out of the true stories that come out of the Cold War. Those are some of the greatest spy stories you'll ever hear. True, like they would just be depicted in a movie, but honest to goodness, true to life. There's a book called The Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman. I haven't read the whole book, so I couldn't recommend it, but I have read some excerpts that are uh, tantalizing to say the least. Um, There was one story of two American spies that are in the USSR during the Cold War. And they knew that they were being followed everywhere they went. And they knew that there were a particular Russians that were assigned to their detail and would follow them everywhere. And so they knew that their phones were bugged. They knew that, that everything in their apartments were bugged. They knew everything about them was, was being followed. And so they took some phones that they knew that the Russians were listening to, and they planned a birthday party with someone they knew. And so they planned this birthday party, and when the day came for the birthday party, they walked outside to their car. One of them was carrying a cake. And he sat in the passenger seat. The other one got in the driver's seat and they took off down the road. And the Russians, like normal, pulled out behind them and started following them. And as they got further down the road, when they reached the point, which was the actual reason for getting out in town, was to get to a rendezvous point. When they reached that point, they turned the corner as quick as they could, creating a little bit of space between them and the Russians. And when they did, the car stopped. The guy in the passenger seat left the birthday cake in the passenger seat, got out of the passenger seat, closed the door, slipped behind a building so he wasn't noticed before the Russians could turn the corner and see that he was gone. The person in the driver's seat pulled a handle on the birthday cake and out popped a silhouette to make it appear as though he never left the car and he took off down the road. How awesome is that? That's incredible. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Uh, Could be made into a movie. (laughs) But the things that you gather about these spies as they operated in foreign territory is that their purpose was to determine allegiances. And their their desire was to turn the allegiance of of a person that was a native-born citizen of that country into something. someone who was aligned with American interests. And so they developed these terms, terms you're probably all familiar with, a term like agent. An agent is a person who is a citizen of Russia, but is actually working for their allegiances to America. And then they had double agents, people who were natural-born citizens of Russia, who they thought were on the American side, who they thought their allegiance was towards America, but who were actually double-crossing America and who were actually sided with Russia. But it seems that the purpose of these spies was meant to determine and even sometimes manipulate allegiances in foreign territories. This morning in our text... um, allegiance, who you are aligned with, takes center stage. It's of chief concern to Jesus, and he does it by using an example closest to home, our families. 
Let's, with that in mind, let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard words. Pray only that we can understand them. Please allow us the insight, the wisdom that it takes to understand the words that you've given to us in your word in Matthew and apply it to our lives. Be with us as we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the close of chapter 10 in the book of Matthew where Jesus has been preparing his apostles for the mission trip that they're about to go on. He's been telling them what life is going to be like after he goes. He's not just preparing them for the remote trip that he's about to send them on. They're about to go on a little journey, probably for no more than a few weeks. And he's obviously giving them words that are more pertinent than for just that scene, that just that little mission trip. He tells them they're going to be dragged before governors and kings for his sake. He tells them they're going to bear witness before the Gentiles. He obviously has in mind well after he's gone, you're going to be giving witness to the world and you're going to be persecuted for my sake. Sometimes it's difficult, I think, as we read passages like we have over the last few weeks in Matthew chapter 10, where we just talk about persecution after persecution. Sometimes it's difficult for us in America to relate like perhaps brothers and sisters in countries around the world today. It's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of our brothers and sisters in perhaps some country like North Korea or Iran and many other countries around the world where Christians are being pushed out, where Christians are being killed even for following Christ. But, but here in this passage this morning, I think there is something that we can easily relate to. We've all got family issues. Every last one of us could go around this room talking about all of the issues that we've had in our families. All of the people that have cut us out of their lives. Perhaps all the people we've cut out of our lives. We've all had those family reunions where we're trying to duck people. We're trying to not make eye contact with certain individuals. Maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. But I think we probably all have had those times where I don't really want to be around family because it's pretty awkward. In order to endure the kind of life that Christ has mapped out for his disciples, the disciple has to understand. I think it's fundamental to, to making sense of it all. We have to understand Christ's purpose. What he's actually come to do. And I think that is to change your allegiance. First, we see that in Christ's kingdom, traditional allegiances have been erased. In Christ's kingdom, 
Traditional allegiances have been erased. Jesus' words here at the opening of the passage where he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Those words that he gives to us, they're supposed to be jarring to us. They're supposed to set our teeth on edge. And they do sort of catch you off guard, don't they? I mean, they don't, they don't really sound like Jesus. Jesus says he's bringing a sword, and, and by that, of course, he means the sword of war. He's coming to bring the sword of war. He's coming to create conflict. Now, I'm going to venture to guess that's not the verse you're going to put on your Christmas cards. Right? I mean, when you think of the incarnation of Christ, we don't think of this as the reason Jesus came. When we think of that little baby in the manger in Bethlehem, does this verse come to mind? Well, this doesn't make it in any of our Christmas hymns. I mean, could you imagine? Silent night? Holy night? Now he's calm, but he's preparing to fight. That doesn't have nearly as good a ring to it, does it? You'll probably recall the angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields. They're keeping watch over their flocks by night. And you remember what the angels sing out with the shepherds there watching in Luke 2, 13 and 14. It says this, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth... What peace among those with whom he is pleased. More importantly, if you're a Jew in the first century, peace is fundamental to the reign of the Messiah. Peace. I mean, one element that the Messiah is going to bring, if nothing else, he's going to instill the peace of God in the world. Now, you already know this. You remember Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And if you don't remember the verse reference, you'll remember when we read it. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. His name shall be called, you probably know it, what is it? Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So you tell me, if you're a Jew in the first century and you're looking for a Messiah, what are you going to look for? Except somebody who comes to instill the peace of God in the world. That's what he's, he came to do, right? So we're supposed to be taken a little bit aback by what Matthew says or what Jesus says here in, in Matthew 10, 34-36. How is it that Jesus can come to bring peace and yet he's also come to not bring peace but the sword? How can he be the Messiah if he hasn't come to bring peace? Well, if you wander into hostile territory, there's one of two ways where you can create peace. At least two ways you can create peace. One is to sit both parties down at a table 
and negotiate a treaty. That's one way that you can uh, get to peace. Now, in that treaty, both people are going to sit down at the table. There's going to be some negotiation. There's going to be some give and take. There's probably going to be some territory exchanged. Somebody will probably have to give up some land. Maybe they'll both have to give up certain pieces of land. They're going to have to probably lay down some arms, maybe even surrender some arms. But at the end you have what hopefully both parties want, which is an end to the conflict. Peace. That's one way to get to peace. Another way to achieve peace is to annihilate the enemy. That's the other way to get peace. Is to walk into hostile territory, is to take your battering ram to their defenses, to strike where they're weak, to slaughter their forces, and completely and totally disarm them. And at the end of the war, you have achieved peace. Now, though it took some manner of aggression to get there, at the end of it, you have achieved peace. Jesus' mission is to achieve peace, yes, but not by avoidance of conflict. He's not coming to achieve peace by avoidance of conflict. He's not coming to establish any peace treaties. He's not coming to cede any ground to the enemy. Now Jesus is actually quoting Micah 7.6 here. You can write that down, Micah 7.6. I won't read it because it's almost a direct quote, but if you, when you read it, you'll see that it's a reference to the Messiah's coming kingdom. And so there's, there's, he, he's saying that there will not be peace too, that he will come to bring a sword, that he will set families against each other. There's no ground in that regard that Jesus is going to cede to the enemy. And the reason is because he has the greatest of all weapons. He has the good news of salvation to those lost and trapped in sin. As proclaimed in his church. You remember what he tells Peter. On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want you to think about that for just a second. On this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A gate is a defensive tool. A gate is there for protection. The image that Jesus is giving to His apostles is that they're going to take the battering ram of the good news of the gospel, salvation from sin, and they're going to run it into the gates of hell with everything they have. And the gates of hell are going to tremble, and they're going to quake, and eventually they're going to rupture, and they're going to let, let loose anyone that was held captive by uh, hell itself. All the hostages therein, blinded by Satan, were going to be set free by the proclamation of the gospel. But there are also those who are not held hostages by the gates of hell, but that are part of hell's army. And the problem is, Jesus says, for most disciples... Hell's forces are going to be members of his own household. I was in a foreign country sharing the gospel with a Tibetan Buddhist. 
We weren't in Tibet, but we were sharing with a Tibetan Buddhist. They're particularly staunch when it comes to Buddhism. And at the end of the conversation, he acknowledged that what he heard in the gospel, he thought to be right. But he was still hesitant to actually give up his life and follow Christ. And so when we ask about his hesitation, why are you hesitant to follow Jesus? He said, and this is as near quote as I can remember, when I go back home and I tell my parents that I've become a Christian, they'll disown me. I want to follow Jesus, but before I do, I have to count the cost. Now that might sound like a foreign concept to some in this room, but I know that there are people in here who have had people in their families cut you out of their lives. Whether it's sons or daughters or perhaps even parents or husbands, spouses. When the child realizes that not only do you, the parent, follow Jesus, but because you follow Jesus, you don't approve of the lifestyle or the decisions that they've made, it may cause some of them to consider their choices. It may cause some of them to think about what you've said and to change their life, and perhaps they turn and repent. But the very notion that because of your allegiance to Jesus, that you are against them will cause many, if not most of them, to turn away from you. And especially if it's your kids, there go the Christmases, there go the Thanksgivings, there go the grandkids. It hurts. Now, if you've been a Christian long enough, chances are you felt even a small portion of this. Now, it may be for you a, a relative more distant than a child or a parent, but you've probably felt this. And the decisions are not easy, and many times you're cut off and you start to think, am I the crazy one? Am I just being overbearing here? Am I just maybe being just unrelenting? Do I just need to stay silent, maybe keep the peace? I mean, doesn't Jesus himself say that blessed are the peacemakers? Maybe I should just be a peacemaker. Just be quiet about the whole thing. It might be helpful to know that what's happening to you isn't unusual. In fact, it's highlighted by Christ as the very reason that he came in his kingdom, traditional allegiances have been erased and you're going to feel the, that the most inside your family. That's where you're going to feel the most pressure. You're not the exception, you're the rule. But in Christ's kingdom, a new allegiance to Christ has surpassed all others. In Christ's kingdom, a new allegiance to Christ has surpassed all all others. Look with me at verse 37 and following. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
So he's not just creating conflict just to create it. He's not just creating a rift and separating you from your family just to do so. He's replacing it with an allegiance to him above all else. Now, to a Jewish audience, probably much like an American audience, there's, there's going to be felt some, some uh, strong family bonds. And those family bonds in a Jewish audience run quite strong. Uh, in fact, we see even a couple of chapters ago, you remember Jesus goes into Peter's house and he heals somebody there? A woman. You remember who it is? It's Peter's mother-in-law. Most likely, the reason why she's there is precisely because she lives with him. It's not uncommon in a first century Jewish community for either the, the married family member to go home and raise kids under the same roof as the patriarch of the family, or vice versa, for the, the parents to get old and to come live with the children. And that's probably what's happening even with Peter right there in the story is that his mother-in-law is sick because she's, she's older and she's getting sick and Jesus heals her right there in Peter's house. So in a culture where honor of parents is paramount, even commanded, fifth commandment, Jesus steps in and he says, if you don't love me more than your own parents, you're not worthy of me. The gist of what he's saying there when he says you're not worthy of me is similar to how we would say you don't have what it takes. That's the same kind of point that he's making there. You don't have what it takes. A love greater than that of the family is required to follow Christ. And this is the only way that you're going to actually be able to take up the spiritual arms of the gospel and, and use them even against members of your own household is if you have a greater allegiance to Christ than to your own family. In the parallel account in Luke, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or, and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If he doesn't hate, and that's just a stronger way, a more forceful way of saying the exact same thing he's saying there. You have to have a greater love for Christ than for your own children. That by comparison, it would even look like hate. And if you don't, you're not worthy of Christ. It's not only a love that's greater than the love you have for your children. It's also a love that's, that's more enduring. That, a love that you, more than a love that you have even for your own life. Look at what he says in verse 38. Now, this is the first time that crucifixion comes into the story is in verse 38. It's the first time it's mentioned in the gospel. And we, of course, know that Jesus is on his way. He's preparing to go to the cross and die. Now, the cross is not only a symbol of death, but it's death in the most horrific way a man could possibly conceive of. It's torture. And now we hear that he's expecting his disciples to even carry their cross as well. It's a love even greater than your own life. It doesn't mean that every disciple of Jesus is going to die in the most horrific way possible. But what it does mean is that every disciple is going to feel the burden of following Christ. Every single disciple is going to feel the burden of following Christ and is going to be expected to bear that burden through their entire life all the way to death. And for some, that is going to be a family burden. 
For some, it's going to be a family burden, denying themselves acceptance even within their own family because of the cross that they're carrying for Christ. For others, it's going to be a burden of sexual gratification and a family, depriving them of family, essentially, denying their own impulses because they know those impulses defy God's orders. And yet, even still, there's going to be some who are married to spouses that deny Christ out of hand. And there's going to be times where they're tempted because they they know or they feel like if I were to just be released from this burden where I'm always on guard every time I go home, if I just could just get a divorce, then things would be better. And they tell themselves that and they think that and it comes across their mind and yet they deny that because they know it would be defying God's command. And it's the cross that they're bearing for their life. So many in the church, though, want to be double agents. We want to keep our allegiances to this world and do the whole church thing too. Perhaps maybe I can still have all my friendships. Perhaps I can still have all my relationships. Perhaps they can all be intact and nobody can be mad at me there. But then I can also step foot in the church and Jesus can be there too. And maybe I can keep a foot in both camps and you're ultimately hoping that neither side will execute you. But Jesus is telling us it doesn't work that way. It simply does not work that way. If you're part of his kingdom, then you're giving up the thinking of the world. He's not just dissolving your relationships and your current allegiances. He's he's drawing all new ones and they all run through him first. So those friends that you once had What are they now that you're in the kingdom? Those friendships that you once had. Those friends that are outside of the kingdom. Now that you're in, what are those friendships? Well, they're potential pitfalls. When they tempt you into corrupting talk. When they tempt you into worldly thoughts. But they're not just pitfalls. They're also people for whom if something doesn't change quickly, they're going to spend an eternity in hell. They're your mission field. They're people that you have an opportunity to share the gospel with. People that you need to be praying for. Your unbelieving spouse, it's not just someone that you live with, that you share life with. That's the way the world thinks of marriage. That's not the way you think of marriage anymore. That spouse that you have is someone that you can either lead if you're the husband Or follow if you're the wife and demonstrate the values of the kingdom in a God-honoring way that they may also turn and believe. So you're not just thinking about those allegiances in the same way the world would think about those relationships. That's entirely different for you now. Your primary focus is on Christ's purpose for you in those relationships. So on the one hand, I have to keep guard over my own soul as I'm around them. That I wouldn't fall into sin. 
but then also have to keep guard and watch over their soul. Because that's an eternal soul there that's in danger of hell. How can I love this person so as to present the most winsome argument for Christ and for life inside his kingdom? Jesus told us as much in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? When it came to our food and our clothing, what did he say? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, even the need for, the, for goods that we have to have, clothing and food, are secondary in relationship to your following Christ. These are strong demands from Jesus. But the good news of the kingdom is that what it requires, it also supplies I'm going to confess to you, this is too hard for me. And I don't get it right every time. This is one of the more difficult texts to read and to think about. And to be frank with you, this kind of allegiance to Christ's kingdom is sometimes feels too much for me. This is why Christ's perfect life is so important. He lived the life I couldn't. He lived as a model citizen. And yet he died my death He died the death of a traitor. He died the death of a double agent, if you will. That's my death. That's not his. That's mine. And the crazy part of it is that he offers to me the rewards of his being a model citizen simply by faith. He offers me a key to the city given to him by God himself. Simply to be had by faith. If you currently stand outside of Christ or perhaps you're not, you don't know, you haven't made up your mind. Sinner, I beg you to repent and to believe in Christ. I beg you to reconsider. As for the rest of us, this should hit us square in the face. For younger parents, and by that I mean parents with kids still in the home, Your child is not the boss and they don't get to determine what's best for them. 
And the reason that I say that is because I I hear so often from parents, and I think well-meaning parents who are really just trying to figure it out, particularly as kids get older and they start making some of their own decisions and it's difficult to to wrestle with, and, and there comes that thought in your mind, and sometimes it even comes out your mouth, that I don't want to force Jesus on them. Because if I force Jesus on them, as the thinking goes, if I force it down their throat, then they may run away. Let's dispel that notion for just a second. As much as I dislike the the metaphor, forcing Jesus down their throat, let's go with it for a second. If they run away, they don't believe it. If they do believe, that won't be forcing it down their throat. It'll be gracious and merciful of you as a parent to give it to them. The other part of this is what happens when it comes to school? We don't think of school this way. If your child got up and said, I want to go to school this morning, you know, because... I don't really like people there. I don't really know people there. I don't like the way they teach there. You would say to them flatly, I don't care. Get in the car. We're going to school. You're doing a great mercy to them by bringing them to church. Having them here and, and hey, if they don't believe the gospel, if they currently are unbelievers, how do they come to belief except by hearing? And where is the gospel proclaimed but from the pulpit? While they're in your house, you're not your child's best friend. Older parents, and by that I mean ch- parents of children who are out of the home, do not compromise biblical truth in order to include your wandering child in the kingdom of God. Do not compromise biblical truth in order to include your wandering child in the kingdom of God. It's not being honest with yourself, and it's not being honest with your children. And you're never going to actually confront them with the gospel if you're using that logic just so that you can sleep at night. I understand the pressure. I really do get it. I understand the feeling that I'm not sure that my wandering child is out there. He's making terrible decisions. He's following hitherto and yon. I don't think he's doing what's right. But I do remember that one time when he was seven, he got baptized. He hasn't set foot in church one time after that, and he's wandering like crazy. He's never been a part of church after that, and he's lived like hell for the rest of his his life. But I do remember the one time he got baptized. How are you ever going to sit down at the table and confront him over sin and explain to him your fear that he is going to end up in hell for all of eternity? How are you going to ever have the courage to do that? To call out sin as it's needed. Now, regardless of what camp you're in, whether even if you don't have kids and you're thinking about friends that you've got that are involved, all of us are struggling with walking the line. Every single one of us are are walking on a tightrope between keeping peace and being peacemakers and fighting for Jesus. 
All of us are trying to find that right balance, and it all takes wisdom. There's no perfect solution here. It's wisdom from God. It's help from Him. It's help from the Spirit to help fight these kinds of battles. Because in some cases, your keeping the peace can be a disguise for cowardice. And sometimes fighting for Jesus can be be a disguise for being a jerk in Jesus' name. And it's on you to figure out the balance between the two. And you're going to have to do it in love. But don't forget, have a spine of steel. You've got all of these things that you've got to balance. It's difficult. And to be honest with you, we're not going to strike the right balance every time. We wouldn't be sinners if we did. But I can tell you right now, if if you're out there, and you're thinking of real situations that you've got going on in your life right now. And you've spoken truth, maybe, to an individual. And that person has cut you out of their life. And right now you're wondering, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Maybe that relationship is really important. Let me tell you, you don't know how that relationship's going to end up. Be faithful. Where you've overstepped your boundaries... Repent to God and to them. Confess them. Just lay them out there. You've got nothing to lose. Tell them you were wrong. But be faithful. Be courageous. Stand on the grounds of the gospel. Don't compromise. If you don't feel the fight... If you don't feel that burden of the cross, maybe because you're not a Christian. If that's the case, examine your life. Examine the claims of Christ. Repent of your sins. Come home. Question is, whose side are you on? Where is your allegiance? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for so many in this church that are struggling right now with their relationships, struggling with thoughts of discouragement over the frustrations that they feel inside their own family. Father, I pray for them. You would give them courage. That you would give them a heart for those that are lost in sin. You would help them to have the right words to say as they encounter friends and family members. I know they're intimidated. I know they're scared. You do too. You know better than any of us. But your word also promises that we'll have the words when they need to be delivered. So I pray for that confidence of knowing that you're in charge, that you're in control, and that in your time, 
they'll be able to share. Pray that you would open doorways for that. Pray these in Jesus' name. Amen.